Hi everyone, thanks for making it for today's lunchtime session. I'm Morag Henderson and I'll be chairing the session today, so welcome to our final lunch hour lecture of the autumn term. We have one hour together, Francis will present for around 45 minutes, so there'll be time at the end for questions. To submit a question, please use Slido. Um, if there's an obvious clarification question, then I'll interrupt Francis. Otherwise, I'll wait till the end of the session to ask the questions, the sort of more substantive questions. It gives me great pleasure to chair today's session and introduce you to Professor Francis Green, which I'm sure the session will prove to be really interesting and thought-provoking. Before I formally introduce his work, I just want to say as someone who's worked with Francis on a recent project that he is a rare person in academia, someone whose ability and intellect doesn't get clouded by arrogance. He listens, he really listens and gets the right balance of challenge and support. And I don't think enough is said about people's character in academia. I think that should be equal to some of the other credentials that we talk about. But speaking of which, uh, Francis does have plenty. It seems somewhat appropriate to try and quantify his work given that he has um, economist persuasions. He's the author of 10, possibly 11 books now, and over 150 papers, which have triggered about 17,000 citations. He's a recognized authority on aspects of labor market economics, education, and skills. And more recently, his work is focused on the economic and social effects of private schooling in the past and present. And his latest book, co-authored co with David Kynarston, Engines of Privilege, Britain's Private School Problem, was published by Bloomsbury in um, Bloomsbury Press in 2019. Today's lecture is entitled What do Private Schools Do? A look at the evidence and it will showcase the evidence that's built up over the last 20 years, much of it from UCL. So before I hand over to Francis, I'd just like to remind everyone to ask the questions using the Slido link that you were sent in your joining instructions. If you do not have the link, you can go to Slido um, and that's sli.do and enter the code, which is all in capital letters, LHL Autumn. Um, that's LHL Autumn in capital letters. And the details will be also on the screen during the lecture so that you can submit any questions, both clarification and substantive. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Francis and his talk. Thank you. Hi there, everybody. Thanks so much for that uh, undeserved and and a lovely introduction, Morag. Uh, I can just return the compliment to just say how, how, how much you have contributed to some of the research that, that I've been doing on, on private schooling over the last uh, few years. Uh, what I want to talk to today about is not just about that research, but research generally and the picture generally of what we as social scientists know about uh, private schooling. So without... Uh, Further ado, I'm going to uh, put some uh, slides up on, on the screen um, and we're going to go through, let's see if we can get this to work, there we are, do precisely what Morag uh, suggested, uh, uh, which is to basically have a look at the evidence. Uh, and I'm going to start by a quiz. So you have five or 10 seconds to think about this. Who is the odd person out on this screen here? Well, possibly, unless you're getting on a bit, you might not know the answer. The answer is not Theresa May, she's the only woman, not uh, Corbyn, 
because he's the only person who didn't make it to be prime minister, but it is Gordon Brown who was the only one amongst them who never went to a private school at any point in his schooling. And that is what I'm here to tell you about today. The fact is that private school alumni are extremely uh, prevalent in modern public life. Um, uh, these are figures from uh, just last year. Um, uh, well, from the, from, the, from the current year, two thirds of the current Boris Johnson cabinet are privately educated. And in 2019, research from the Trust, Sutton Trust tells us that there was a predominance of members of parliament, even more so House of Lords, Nearly half of our top British business uh, leaders were privately educated. Then there's the rich list, 57% of them, 44% of newspaper columnists, 59% of top civil servants, 65%, nearly two thirds therefore of senior judges, all people in positions of public influence over our public life in, in Britain are privately educated. So these are, the, these are the sort of general figures behind a, a charge which has been made time and again over the recent five year period, that there is something of a, a democratic deficit uh, in this country if so many people in top positions are privately educated, when in fact, <coughs> the sector itself at school is actually quite little. So consider these facts, only one in 16 pupils at any point in time are going to a private school. So roughly 7% or so. Um, and, and, and actually much less than that in, in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Despite its small size, however, actually the sector is pretty important because it actually takes up one in seven of every, one in every seven teachers works in a private school and one in every six pounds of educational expenditure is spent in a private school. And by the sixth form, private schools are proportionately more dominant, taking up one in, in, in every six pupils. And also, and this is a point I'll come back to again and again, there is an enormous resource gap uh, in the per, per pupil spending between uh, the average private school and the average state school, something of the order of 30%. It's not that the private schools are a little better resource. It's not like 30% more or 40% more, it's 300% more. And so we're talking about a sector which is basically very affluent in relation to the state sector. Um, and the consequence of that is uh, considerable social exclusiveness. I'm not going to dwell on this, but I will just point out that the current average fee is something just over 17,000 pounds, but something just over 15,000 pounds for, for just day schools. And it won't surprise you to see this diagram, which gives you the proportion of people who attend a private school at different rungs of the income ladder. And you can see right at the top the, pro the concentration of people at the top. The interesting thing perhaps about this diagram, or perhaps the thing which might surprise you, is to see that even along the bottom uh, middle income and lower income ranges, there's still just a one or two or three percent 
going to private school. And you might ask the question, where on earth is that coming from? Because somebody down here uh, below the middle of the income range couldn't possibly afford 15,000 pounds a year. Well, uh, the answer to that is twofold. On the one hand, it's family wealth, which supports those people. Uh, they have to draw on their family wealth. Uh, but on the other hand, to some extent, uh, and what it applies to one in five of, of these people, they get a small bursary from the schools, which helps to pay the fees. But on the whole, bursaries are relatively small beer. Only 1% of private school pupils actually go free. And um, overall, as, as the overall turnover of the sector, it's only about 4%. So you can see that bursaries are not really part of the big picture. Uh, this, is, this, this next diagram shows you the story about the fees again and, and how it's changed over the last uh, 30, 40 years. Um, you see uh, in the bottom line, that's just the price line for inflation, giving you inflation gradually seeping up over the years. And here's what's happening to the school fees. The blue line is for day fees. The orange line, at least it's orange on my screen, is for... Um, for boarding school fees, you can see that they've soared way ahead of inflation over the years. And that's only taking it up to 2014, the last six years has basically con continued that trend. So what we have here is uh, a, a, a rather exclusive sector and a controversial topic. Um, uh, and uh, it's controversial because uh, it gets talked about a lot in terms of public policy associated with social mobility. And I want to ask the question, what actually do private schools do? What effect do they have on the children go to private schools compared to the children that go to state schools? Um, does it have the mooted effects on social mobility, which reformers might want to address. Is it worth it from the point of view of parents who are considering sending their children to private school? Would it make any difference or should, could they just save the money and just send, it, send their children to a state school and would their children do just as well? We're dealing with a controversial topic, a difficult topic. And I'm therefore starting today's lecture with the <clears throat> proposition that it's better to conduct such basis in any debates that we have on the basis of systematic and dare I say scientific evidence. So here are the aims of, of my talk today. I want to give you an overview of research knowledge and in particular ask three questions. Why might private schools be expected to have any special effects compared to going to state school? How do we go about finding out what these effects are in practice? And what are the key findings that should be informing current debates? So what does a private school typically offer? If you go to a, a website of some of the better known or even the less known private schools, you will find, I suggest, a combination of these various things. First of all, a claim for academic excellence, particularly academic gains and good access to good universities. Question mark, do they really deliver this? Or was it just that they take clever children who would go there anyway? 
But beyond the academic side, they also offer a thing called character. You often see the word character suggested, but does it make any difference to the character of the children who go there? Um, they all offer a, a much broader curriculum than you get in the average state school. Uh, there's much more money to spend and there's an extracurricular activities in abundance. And very often you'll find a claim to a certain history and a high quality experience, lots of cultural and fun activities and good pastoral care. So that's what's, what's ostensibly on offer. Let's think for a moment before we go on then, why private schools might do better in terms of exam results and so on than state schools. The first, and I suggest the biggest effect, comes from their resource advantage. I've already mentioned the threefold advantage in terms of per capita spending, and that, that obviously manifests itself in various ways. The biggest way is that the class sizes are half the size in, in private schools compared to what they are in the state schools, but also you get the effect on facilities and, and ancillary staff. But it's not just the resources. It's also been claimed that there are what's called peer effects. That is to say, children are affected by the other children in their classes. So um, uh, you have social exclusive membership of these schools, as I've mentioned. So largely the children in your classes are coming from wealthy families and wealthy backgrounds. And secondly, at least half of the school exercise quite strong academic selectivity. Certainly not all the schools, but about half the schools exercise academic selectivity. And so you have to pass exams and so on in order to get into them, especially at the, at the secondary level. So those are other reasons why you might get good exam results at the end because they've been selected. And the third reason, sometimes claimed, often claimed, is that you get good results in private schools because they are private per se, that, um, that, uh, that private schools have independence, that they can operate in their own way, they can, they can be well managed, best managed, and so on and so forth. Often an argument in favor of private sector generally that economists sometimes make. So that's, that's the case in theory, but first of all, how do we find whether that's true in practice? Is it the case that private schools actually do benefit, uh, uh, benefit uh, the pupils who go there? So I first want you to think about how you would try and find that out. And scientists, I suppose their first port of call is, can they do an experiment? If they want to find something else, you, you want to do an experiment. And of course the problem is you can't, in private schools, you can't sort of say, let's try as an experiment. We'll send some children to private school and some to state school and wait 10 years and see which ones do best. Nevertheless, you can try what's called a quasi-experimental method. Um, and in particular, what happens if you have a lottery for access to private school? 
might seem a bit strange for anyone living in this country, but actually lotteries to go to private school are not, uh, are not unusual in the United States. And so I'm going to tell you about a study which looked at a Louisiana program, program in the state of Louisiana, where they gave out vouchers randomly or supposedly randomly among low-income families for children to attend private schools. Now that was done in an attempt to reduce the poor performance of disadvantaged children. But of course, it also looked like a good experiment. It gave an opportunity to compare the progress of those children who randomly won the lottery with those who didn't. However, first of all, there were very mixed results. Some lotteries, and I'm now talking about the lotteries in general, some lotteries show negative effects of going to a private school, and some show zero effects, and some show positive effects of going to a private school in America. So we don't seem to learn very much there to generalize. And secondly, Although it may seem like a random allocation of children to schools, often lotteries are not. And for example, in the Louisiana experiment, uh, it was probably more the struggling private schools which were joining the lottery scheme. And therefore maybe you weren't seeing the best of the private schools and, and, and the effect was, was, was sort of downward biased as a result. So lotteries, are a questionable way of getting at this question uh, and they only apply in the United States anyway. So the majority of studies actually use what we call an observational measure, method, essentially taking large scale surveys and the use of statistical methods to compare the outcomes of those who are privately educated with the outcomes of the state educated. Large surveys, well, the problem with this method is what's called the selection problem, which is that you're comparing, uh, because of non-random selection, we can't simply make straight comparisons between the private school children and the state school children. We have to take into account the average differences between the sorts of children who go to each type of school. Now, statistical methods are designed so that as far as possible, we can compare like with like. So what we want to do is to compare children who go to a state school with similar sorts of children who go to a private school. But that requires very good data. It, it requires data on the, on the background of the, of the children uh, and uh, yeah, very good data on the background of children so that we can take account of social selection, that is to say, wealthier children going to private school, and we can take account of potential academic selection where the private schools are able to select on the basis of exam, entrance exams. So we need usually longitudinal data, including data on socioeconomic background, prior education achievements and early childhood data. And I'm gonna take this opportunity to sing the praises of what are called the modern cohort studies. These are three studies of cohorts of children born respectively in 1958, then again in 1970, and then another uh, born in 1989-90. And then the millennium cohort study 
uh, built, uh, born in 2001, uh, 2000 and 2001. So we have there four cohorts at different stages in, the, in, in Britain's past half century and it enables us to look at uh, uh, schooling outcomes and lifelong outcomes for various different parts of our society. And they often are used in lots of studies for health and education and have figured strongly also in our understanding of private schools. So let's look at one of these studies just to get ourselves in the mood. This is looking at the effect on education performance in prep schools, that is to say primary private schools compared to primary state schools. And the key findings go like this, is that the value added score, that is the, how much they make educational progress between the ages of five and 11, or in some cases seven to 11, the value added reading scores were modestly higher for similar, than for similar state school pupils. So that uh, in 1981, the, the ones that the children who, whoops, the children who were uh, uh, 11 in 1981, their, their math scores, their value-added math scores compared with their earlier math scores were higher for prep school pupils than for state school pupils by eight rank points. Now imagine we've sort of ranked their value-added from one to 100. So eight is a significant amount. It's not an enormous amount, but it's a, a, a significant amount. Similarly for reading scores, and this is, happens to be for 2011, this is the more recent children, the difference is six ranking points. So there's clear evidence there with extremely good high quality data, I have to say, suggesting that the prep schools are doing better than the equivalent primary schools. Now here, looks, here we're gonna look at the other end of the educational career spectrum. And here I should acknowledge this is a, a study which is uh, uh, led by our esteemed chair Morag today. <laughs> um, in uh, 2008, uh, private school pupils achieved in sixth form, they achieved eight percentage points higher in the A-level rankings. So what we did there was to, or what Morag did there was to summarize people's A-level rankings from one to a hundred, and then you can see how uh, everybody stands on those A-level rankings. And on average, private schools did eight percentage points higher than the state schools. And in terms of the ranking for what's called facilitating A-levels, and those are the sort of subjects which are helpful for getting into good universities, it was 11, pointage, 11 percentage points difference. And then uh, for getting into the prestigious universities, uh, a 10 percentage point greater chance if you'd gone to a private school. Now, remember those findings, those key findings, which are the result of a lot of statistical research, they come after you're controlling for socioeconomic background and after you're controlling for how well they had done in their GCSEs. So this is just looking at the progress they make between their GCSEs and their A-levels. And we see that the, um, the, the sixth formers in private schools are doing better. So, there are undoubtedly some cumulative educational outcomes going on. And to summarize the, the, the sum total of all the research on this, actually there are studies out there which show a small, modest, but significant advantage at every stage of schooling and in terms of university access, that the private schools do better, the private school pupils do better than the state schools. 
the state school pupils. There is one little blot on that, which is once children become adults and get to university, actually the private school pupils do a little worse. And often something is made of that. I don't think we should make an enormous amount of that. The differences are relatively small. Um, and it's easy to understand why that should happen because of course, while they're at university, once they're at university, private school pupils begin to look the same as state school pupils, they're just students. So they don't have special advantages of, of, of resources there necessarily, at least not so much. So there is an educational advantage to go to private schools. I, I would say that's the first big result of today. But then the next question you might want to ask is, well, how? How on earth do they bring this about? Is it, is it the resources gap? Is it the peer effects that I mentioned before? Is it the, is it something to do with being private per se? Now, we can't directly answer that question perfectly, but what we can do is to ask, well, how can we be sure that resources make a difference? And I thought it would be interesting to, to show you today how we as social scientists go about trying to answer that question. Well, the key is that you've got to have some kind of external source of variation. Now that means to say some outside reason why some schools might have more resources than another. You can't just take two schools or take two groups of schools and compare the, compare the outcomes because, because of this problem of selection. So that, you know, if you just say, look at small classes, well, it may be that lower performing children in some schools at least are allocated to the smaller chances, uh, smaller classes. And if that's the case, then you wouldn't necessarily see the, see the exam performance of those children in the smaller classes of being any better. So you have to find an external source of variation. And well, there are a number out there. Perhaps the most famous was an experiment that again, the Americans did in the state of Tennessee, uh, which was done in the early 1990s, where incredibly, this might seem very extraordinary to us here in Britain. Uh, they, they were allowed to conduct an experiment where for a, a number of years, uh, uh, class sizes were reduced by more than a third, more than a third in a group of schools. And then there were control schools where the classes weren't reduced and the attempt was to see the effect on the pupils. That's very rare and it's a contested study in any case. More common are other reasons why class sizes might vary or resources might vary. One was court mandated rulings on school funding because in the United States, school funding varies a lot from one locality to another. But the study I want to tell you about today is something which derives from having legal caps on class sizes. And there are two main studies. One was in Sweden, one was in Israel, and I'm going to tell you about the study from Sweden. It goes like this. If you have a class size cap of 30, which is what the schools in Sweden did, then the number of 
children in the class depends on how many children there are in that particular cohort. So if there are, let's say, in a cohort joining a school one year, let's suppose there are 25 children, then you have just the one class. But if there are 35 children, you would have two classes, and therefore the class size on average for those 35 children would be smaller. And here's a picture which kind of explains that. If you look at this direct, uh, this uh, continuous line here, this gives you in theory what the class size would be according to the enrollment, the size of the enrollment in that, in that particular school district from, from year to year. So if say you only had just 15, then you would have one class, and you don't have any 15 children in the class. As you move up and you get more and more children, you still only got one class and uh, the, the class size gets bigger up until 30. But as soon as you've got 31 children, then you legally mandated to have a much smaller class, uh, have to have two class sizes and therefore you'd have just over 15 average class size. And again, as the school enrollment gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you can see in other words, you get a kind of zigzag pattern like that. So what this brings about is a rather natural and rather random distribution of school sizes. So if you happen to be in a school, uh, in a school year where the district enrollment was say just below 30, then you're kind of unlucky because you're going to have to have a class size of just below 30. But if the district enrollment is just above 30, then you're lucky because you're going to get two classes, and therefore you can, you can be taught in a much smaller class. So having established that, then the question is, how do those children do? How do the children who are lucky, who get into the lower class sizes down here, compare with the children who are unlucky, who were educated in years where the class size is approaching 30? I'll summarize the results. And the results are remarkable. That is to say that the cognitive and non-cognitive abilities of children by the time of age 13 had definitely improved and the improvement continued until the age of 16. In Sweden, they, they know this well because they have very good administrative records of, of how children do in school. And indeed then they were able, uh, because this study was done um, uh, a few decades ago, two decades ago, the long-term effects on completed education on wages and earnings still showed up at ages 27 and 42. So these were substantial benefits and they were enough to pass a cost benefit test. So resources do make a difference. And I've given you one example of how we, 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 we find that out. What about peer effects? Well, the same thing applies in peer effects. You need to know, you need to have some kind of external variation to try and get a handle on this question. And here we're going to turn to a disaster. It's a case of gaining some knowledge from disaster. Those of you who are old enough will remember Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina was a large hurricane, not especially large, but it happened to uh, come on shore in the Gulf of Mexico, right bang in New Orleans. 
uh, in 2005. And uh, it wreaked incredible havoc, exposed the social um, fabric of that part of the world. A lot of poor housing was destroyed. The levees hadn't been properly maintained, etc., etc. The consequences for education were that many, many schools and many, many houses were destroyed and many, many children had to be relocated for several months or into years. They went to neighboring states, uh, into Texas and elsewhere. And in particular, some of them ended up in Houston. And so this gave some enterprising economists an opportunity to look at peer effects, because what you had is a group of children coming from the outside by this kind of random event called a hurricane and landing in your class. And so they were able to examine what was the effect on the children in Houston of these arriving students from, um, from New Orleans and from Louisiana generally. And there's three results here I'll just mention, just summarize as a quite a complex picture, but they basically firmly established that peer effects were real. It's a very, very solid set of studies, these. So first of all, high quartile evacuees, what, they, what that means is basically the, the, the more able children from Louisiana were uh, significantly improving the educational performance of native Houston pupils. So if you were, a, child, a Houston child and these more able children came in from, Houston, from Louisiana, then your, your performance improved. And then the opposite was the case as well, that if you were in a class um, uh, of low academic performance, uh, Katrina evacuees were, were introduced and then that would hold, hold the Houston natives back. So that was looking at exam results and a similar sort of finding happens in the case of uh, behavior. So they have measures of behavior like absence and, and, and punishments and so on. And what they found was proof of what's called <laughs> rather strangely, the bad apple theory, namely that you actually only needed a few misbehaving evacuees to considerably worsen the behavior of the students. So that's peer effects, and that's a good example, I think, of how economists and other social scientists go into looking into actually rather a difficult question. Thirdly, let's go to the third possible reason why private schools possibly do well. And that's the argument uh, that's sometimes made that they are just very good because they are private. Well, here, the story is very different. There is no actual evidence supporting this view. Uh, there are two studies, one of which I partook of myself. Uh, none of them show uh, any significant uh, advantage of the private schools in terms of management methods. Now, it's quite a contested thing to look at management methods, but nonetheless, we do know what generally makes for a well-managed organization. Um, uh, uh, John Van Rienen and his colleagues have looked at this for lots of different organizations, not just in schools, but when they looked at it in schools, they found that 
there was really no significant difference between the private schools that they looked at, and they looked at about 80 of them, and the state schools that they looked at. And similarly, when we looked at uh, a different set of management practices, if anything, we, we found that the private schools were managed a little bit less well. There wasn't a great deal of difference, but the main point to take away from this set of research, and only just these two studies, is that there's absolutely no reason to believe that the private school, uh, private schools are better managed than, than state schools. So let me conclude uh, on, on, let me conclude, I'm just like quickly glancing at the, at the, at the time. There's nothing that, that clearly the resources gap's important. Probably also the peer effect is important, but there's there's really no nothing from the story of efficiency from being private. But that doesn't mean that we can say how much how much of it's due to resources and how much of it's due to peer effects. So that's one of the things we don't yet know. Okay, next, the question is, how does private school affect children in their later careers? Everything I've looked at just now is how well they did at school. But I now want to ask how well they did in their later careers. So I'm going to look at what's called the private school pay premium, simply the extra pay that we seem to see private school children getting compared to state school children when they grow up. And I'll just give you this one diagram here. Let me just explain. On this gap, we have the percent or the fractional advantage of children who go to private school. And the blue is males and the red is females. We see that there's a big gap of something like 40% or more for males and something like 30% or more for females. And then even when we take account of their socioeconomic background, their demographic characteristics and so on, there's still a big gap, 30%. So if you've been to a private school, you're gonna get 30% more pay if you're a male and not far short of 20% if you're a female. However, how much of that is due to education? When you control for education, the difference is much reduced down to about 10% for males and a very low amount for females. So that's our first indication that actually the big difference in lifelong earnings from going to a private school actually comes from the education because once you control for the education, that difference gets much, much smaller. So that sums up that point. The main reason behind private school children getting higher pay later on in life is that educational attainment is superior is in terms of exams at least. Nonetheless there's something extra we noticed in that diagram just now there's still something some reason why private school children when they grow up are getting better paid. What is it? Some more evidence of that here is in a study where people look just at graduates. Now you might think that once you're a graduate you're a graduate why does it make any difference later on which kind of school you went to? Well, the fact is it still does. So that if you, if you look at the, uh, 
look at the difference between this is the probability of working in a top occupation, such as a man management job or a professional job. And we find nearly a 10% difference uh, in, 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 the, in the raw difference. When we allow for differences in social background between graduates, it's reduced a bit. When we allow for their school, uh, their prior attainment in school, actually, it makes a bit of a difference. And when we allow for the different kind of university they went to, it makes more of a difference. And when we allow for whether they had a postgraduate qualification as well, it makes a difference. But nonetheless, and this was part of the point of the study I'm describing, there was still a difference of two or three percent, or above two percent here, in the pay of private school alumni. And so the question was asked by the, the authors of this particular study was, why? Where, where on earth is that coming from? One answer, which we can't prove, is networks, social networks. And there was a very intriguing study done by uh, authors at the LSE and at Oxford, where they looked at uh, people who had achieved prominence in life by joining who's who by their midlife. And they knew also about their club memberships. And here's a picture of the Athenaeum Club in London, which is one of the handful of, of exclusive, well, not exclusive, but you, you can pay to join them, but costly to join these private clubs. And so the argument is that often access to good jobs and, and advancement can come informally through sort of conversations and friendships formed there. <clears throat> now, club memberships have been declining uh, over the years, but Clarendon School, that's the, these are the top eight, uh, seemingly reputedly top eight private schools, secondary schools, and the alumni of other leading private secondary schools are consistently more likely than others to hold memberships of private clubs. So the point of this study by uh, Aaron Reeves and others is to suggest that that's an important channel through which even when you're even when you're comparing graduates seemingly like graduates with another, that the private school uh, 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 private school alumni do better. Okay, uh, now I've got I hope a few minutes now just to cover uh, a little bit beyond the rather perhaps dull stuff of economics uh, and uh, uh, that I've been covering up till now. What about other? things what about what other advantages or what other other outcomes might come from going to a private school i was wonderfully intrigued when i saw this headline in the daily mail online um, about six years ago uh, implying as you can see that one of the reasons for going to a private school according to the daily mail was actually to get yourself a rich husband well did that actually happen? Did that work? I decided to do a study with colleagues and we came up with the following findings. And we're just looking at women in this case. And we found that, yeah, indeed, the Daily Mail was right. That, uh, again, using the same sort of methods that I've described up till now, that if you were a girl, if you were a female, then if you went to go to a private school, then later on you would be seven percentage points more likely to marry someone else who is privately educated. And this is, sociologists call this homogamy. 
a form of homogamy. Uh, you were nine percentage points less likely to be economically active, which translates into say that a few more of those people were able to be stay-at-home mums. You were more likely to marry someone with higher education. And, and here was the main key point of the study, the husband that they marry, assuming they do marry, the husband that they marry will receive 20% greater weekly earnings on average. Now I did this with, we did this with two data sets and one of them said about, I think 15% and the other one said 20%. The precise number doesn't matter too much, but it was a substantial significant difference. So it does seem that this was an additional outcome. It wasn't just an individual outcome from the point of view of the, the girls going to private school. It would be a kind of social outcome through marriage. And that brings me on to the, um, the next um, slide, which basically sums up a whole load of other studies, which look at further outcomes. So I'll quickly just summarize these. One study looks at self-esteem and interestingly, no effect on self-esteem. That is to say, the self-esteem of the sort of children who go to private schooling tends to be higher than the self-esteem of children who go to state schools, but it's not enhanced by going to the private school. It just was higher in the first place. That's not the case with something called locus of control, which briefly, broadly translates as confidence. So, it's very clear that going to a private school did increase the children's confidence, confidence that they could control their lives. It raised their aspirations. It raised their eventual occupational attainment in terms of improved their upward mobility. It lowers downward mobility. This is another study. We've already seen how positions of influence have been uh, of private school children are very prevalent in positions of influence in society. And then lastly, two effects worth mentioning. Recent studies have shown, first of all, that there's no effect on volunteering activities and charitable giving. I don't know whether you would have expected to see that or not, but it's, it's, it's a relevant thing to look for because often it's claimed that uh, a public benefit of the private schools is to instill a sort of charitable orientation, a public spirited orientation. Well, this evidence suggests that that's not the case in general. It's not the opposite. It's not a negative effect. It's not a positive effect. There just was no effect that, in other words, privately educated adults are just as um, charitable as state educated adults are neither more nor less. Perhaps even more surprising is that two studies recently have shown no effect on socio-emotional outcomes, uh, things to do with happiness and well-being or the opposite, social malaise and, and mental ill health. A lot is said in recent years of the problems of teenagers and a lot is being spent by many private schools to provide good welfare departments and so on. If you look at Eton College, for example, they have an extremely well-endowed welfare department and an in-house clinical psychologist. Perhaps that's not a fair example, that's the extreme. Nonetheless, the studies which look at the 
socio-emotional outcomes have shown no effect so far. I'm going to close very quickly because I need to, to leave time for questions. Uh, this is only so far. We can only do so much with quantitative social science. We can't look at things which are uh, not quantified, which is always a problem. And the other thing to say is we can't look at macro system effects with this kind of research. We're only looking at individual effects. Um, uh, macro system effects, if you were to suddenly change the whole system, we would need another kind of um, approach. But I want to conclude then with a so what summary. What is the relevance of all this research I've been trying to tell you about? Well, I think you'll agree that social mobility and uh, social justice policies uh, are well informed by this research. Uh, but also it's important for parental choice. Whatever the direction seems to me taken by political discourse, it should go forward in the knowledge that yes, the debate is relevant for social mobility policies. The schools do make a difference to our education system and to how access to positions of influence uh, in our societies uh, obtained in this seemingly meritocratic era. And yes, the schools are socially exclusive and efforts over the last 20 years have not so far dented that. And yes, from the perspective of parents, choosing a private school, if you can afford it, is potentially worth it. On average, you could expect positive benefits in terms of exam results and in terms of jobs and careers and public influence later in life. It doesn't tell you it's definitely worth it, but because remember, it comes at a high cost. Um, and don't expect your children to become nicer people by going to private school or better citizens or happier purely as a result of its schooling. As the evidence doesn't support it. But notwithstanding that body of research, Britain's private sector is, I think, rather hidden from the public view. And I hope you can tell that I believe, at least, that the research helping to understand this sector is important. And uh, I'll finish on this, this note. We are talking, after all, about the private sector of education, not any old private uh, sector. We're talking about education, something which is absolutely central to our society. And much remains to find out about how the schools work and how they're evolving and how they affect the education system as a whole and how policies for change might work. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Francis. I think everyone will agree that was really interesting. And I can tell you that that's reflected in the questions that have been submitted to Slido. Please continue to submit them. I will uh, do my best to represent the questions for Francis. Um, so there's quite a few here. I won't sort of dilly-dally. Um, Francis, do you think in society would just seek out alternative sources of educational advantage? Okay, that's a great question. And the answer is no. <laughs> I don't think that. that they will... They will that one could expect alternative sources of educational advantage, but I'd like you to think about the difference, the difference in resource, resources. The resource gap between private and state schools is 300%, three times 
So it's almost impossible for me to conceive of any future government which would tolerate such enormous resource differences between one type of schooling and another type of schooling within the state sector. So if you hypothetically didn't have a private school system, even within the state school system, there would be inequalities, and I agree with the tenor of the question, there would be inequalities and that will be continual struggle, no doubt, continual political issue, but maybe 10%, 20%, but not 300%. So I think it is too cynical of you to assume that you can't ever change anything. It, it, you, have to, you have to think about the order of magnitude involved. Okay, and so in a similar sort of provocative sense, here's another one. Private school advantage comes from comparing private school students with state schools, and presumably the disparities in quality between these two types of schools. Why do we see private education as a problem when we could be pushing for better quality education within state schools? My, my response to that is, yes, we should be pushing for better quality education in state schools, but I don't see it as a substitute for addressing the, the problems that are caused by the inequalities between the private school system and the state school system as a whole. So, it's really potentially kind of a diversion from the argument. There's lots of things we need to be doing in the state school system, uh, including um, the issues of you know, concentration of high achieving children in some areas and so on. And let's not, let's not uh, deny these, but I think these are different problems and need to be addressed at the same time. Um, and I think that the private, I'll say again, that the private state school gap is so large and so kind of dominant that it can't be ignored. Okay. Um, this is a more descriptive question. What has caused the steep rise in tuition freeze for private education in the UK? Is this isolated to the UK or are fees rising similarly elsewhere? Okay, so what has caused it fundamentally is increasing inequality in the distribution of wealth in this country. It's We've seen that it's not just income which has become more unequal. In fact, in the last 20 years, income hasn't become more unequal, but what has become more unequal is wealth. So as the fees have gone up, so has the wealth gone up of the people who go to the private schooling. That's the biggest single factor. Um, some people say that it is foreign students in private schools that's making a difference because they've become to some prominence in the last five or ten years. In fact, only about five percent of private school children are foreign students with parents living abroad. The largest group is Chinese students, um, some Russians, Germans and others. But on the whole, I don't think that they're, they're large, not large enough to make a difference. What sustains the continually increasing fees is the ability of parents to pay it. And that's sustained by the fact that this small group in society, their wealth has gone up and up and up, keep keeping ahead of everybody else. I might just press you to define the difference between income and wealth. Some of the audience might not be familiar okay. with those distinctions. Yeah, ab absolutely. Income is the amount of money coming in each year that you have. And wealth is the stock of assets that you own, which might be in property, in your house, 
uh, if you own a house, uh, stocks and shares, um, land, property, and so on and so forth. And um, yeah, so it's, it's the inequality of ownership of the wealth and the fact that the wealth of the, the highest wealth holders has continually increased. That's the key thing which has enabled uh, the private schools to increase their fees over the years. Okay, thank you. Um, how much do we know about the impact of teacher quality or pedagogical methods on private school results? That's a brilliant question and the answer is not enough. <laughs> not enough. Um, teacher quality is, is not obviously better in private schools. Teacher quantity is, better, is higher in private schools. Teacher quality, I would say, is different in private schools because you had to have a different set of skills sometimes for teaching highly wealthy, the children of highly wealthy households often in the, in the upper ranks, uh, also uh, academically highly selected. Um, and you put the teachers in those schools into say an average comprehensive school and they'd have to learn a different set of skills um, to deal with the, uh, an average child from a, from a comprehensive school. So there are different qualities which are needed. And if you move children from uh, teachers from one sector to another, uh, probably there has to be a period of adjustment and, 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 and learning going on. It's not impossible. They're still, they're, they're both teachers. So teacher quality is, is such an important issue. And that's why it's such a great question, because we know that teacher quality makes a difference. But it's quite a subtle thing, teacher quality, and uh, as any head teacher will know. Okay, I think we probably have one time for one more question, and it doesn't mean that it's an easy one. Um, there are sort of quest a couple of questions here about where grammar schools fit into all of this. Has there been any study done which between selective state schools or grammar schools and private schools? And if so, what were the results? Okay, so if you take proper account of uh, the selectivity of the grammar schools and some of the some grammar schools are much more academically selective than others remember they're not even the grammar schools are not all the same if you take that into account then again the advantages of private schools shows through but there hadn't been so many studies and so it's not perhaps not such a solid result there but i would also say is that the political discourse, the public discourse on grammar schools is in disproportion to the amount of grammar schools in this country. There are far more private schools, far, far more private schools than there are grammar schools in this country. So, I mean, that's, that's true, I suppose, because partly some of them are, pri are prep schools, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's something which isn't completely settled yet. And we know, we know that overall grammar schools don't necessarily do a lot better than, 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 than state schools and that they do create more inequality. The important thing when you were looking at great uh, grammar schools, you've always got to control for the kind of ability of the children that go to them, which is selective. Great, thank you. That wasn't an easy set of questions, but I just want to sort of represent question. our audience in our thanks for your mm -hmm. lecture today and answering the questions that were posed. Um, for everyone uh, watching, this is our last lunchtime seminar until the new year. Um, so the next lunch hour lecture will begin again on the 19th of January. So please do join the team then. 
and just it leaves me to say thank you again for your time and um ha happy is it too early to say happy christmas maybe but happy holidays thanks very much <laughs>